Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Let's go ahead and uh, get started, everyone. It's just a little after the top of the hour, time, a little after the starting time. I'll uh, open with a word of prayer, some liturgy, and then we'll go into the study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we are blessed to be able to approach the throne once again. Uh, Lord, we come with open hearts, with a willingness to learn and to receive to to um, to take unto ourselves the words which you are giving to us, the truths that you're revealing to us. Uh, Father, we open our hearts to your Holy Spirit, to your precious truth. We open our hearts, Father, to your Son, Yeshua, because it is for him and through him that we find our being, that we find our existence, that we find our very purpose in life. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for um, causing us to be reconciled unto yourself through the mediatorial work of your Son, through his sacrifice, through the perfect sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that um, because he has shown us the way back to the Father, Lord, we now have the ability, the willingness, um, the empowerment to share the good news with others. So, Lord, embolden us. Uh, give us uh, boldness in our speech. Give us... Um, windows of opportunity so that we can share the gospel with those around us, with our friends, with our family members, Lord, that we might be um, a strong witness, that we might let our light shine, that we might not be ashamed of Yeshua, the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together once again this evening by way of the medium of internet, by way of worldwide live internet study. Lord, oh, the wonders of technology. Thank you that you are in control and that you are causing your Torah to indeed go throughout the earth, as it says in Isaiah 2 3. Ki mitzion Torah For the law, for the Torah, shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Bless you, Father, for all of these good things, for all of these good blessings. Raise us up in the fear and admonition. Of the Lord, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all good things. Amen. Okay, well, my name is Ariel Bedlaiman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher with Congregation Kehilatu Nova, the Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. But I'm coming to you live from South Korea, and this is a study on the book of Galatians. It's entitled Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. 
I wrote the commentary, and this is going to be more or less my audio rendition of the written version of the commentary. Today's date on my side of the world is November 25th, 2015, but where you are at, if you are in the class live tonight, it's probably November 24th. The study itself is going to follow the 122-page written commentary, which is available on my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. From the homepage, you can click on the Galatians commentary at the very top, and then just start scrolling down through the page to access all the materials. There are written notes, there are audio notes, there is the online version itself in HTML, and then there's um, these added audio uh, portions as I record them week after week, about an hour long each week. And we hope that you can come out and join with us every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, live on the internet, live from South Korea. Um, and we're going to go for, we'll go on a schedule that looks like this. We'll, um, we'll basically go every week, but take a break every, um, every 10 weeks and, and break for two weeks. So what it'll look like is we'll teach for 10 weeks, we'll meet for 10 weeks, then we'll take a break for two weeks and then we'll meet for 10 weeks and then we'll take a break for two weeks. And we'll just keep going like that on the schedule until we finish the study. So, um, it could take a few months. It could take at least a year. I'm not going to rush anyone. Uh, I'm not, I don't feel rushed myself, so we're just going to go as long as it takes. And by God's grace, Bezat Hashem, we'll just keep going until we finish. Okay? Amen? Amen. All right. Well, um, as I'm um, often fond of doing, let's start with a little bit of liturgy. If you're looking at the screen right now, you'll see that I've got Deuteronomy chapter 6 pulled up. I'm going to read some Hebrew, and I'm going to read some Greek, and then we'll just uh, jump into the study. Um... For my Hebrew selection, I'll just pull a, a familiar selection out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you can see the screen, uh, I've highlighted the part that we're going to read. I'll just scroll down to, uh, this is the first paragraph of the Shema. This is, um, this version that you're seeing here on the screen is the mechonmamre.org version, which is essentially the Hebrew on the left, the English on the right. And the English that you're seeing there is the 1917 JPS, Jewish Publication Society, um, version. So it's kind of nice because I have the English and Hebrew right next to each other in one screen and I don't have to jump around. So let me read the English first and then I'll just read the Hebrew and I'll just go verse by verse. I'll read verses 4 through 9. This is the familiar passage that most of you, if you've ever attended a Messianic congregation or if you pray from the... Um, prayer book, uh, such as I'm fond of using. I use the Complete Art Scroll Sidur Sephardic version for my Shakarit morning prayers, and the Shema is part of that selection. So here we go. The English reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew reads, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Verse 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Verse 7, 
and thou shalt teach them diligently until unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And the Hebrew says, Verse 8, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. And the Hebrew says, And verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. And the Hebrew says, now, if you're looking at the screen, let's jump over to some um, a New Testament passage. This is Galatians chapter two. I pulled this verse up again. I've, all, I've read this in the past, uh, as far as as far as liturgy goes. I think I read it in week three, um, and I'm going to pull this verse out again because I want to um, demonstrate to the students tonight how this is one of the primary chair passages or central themes of the entire book of Galatians, and that if we wrap our mind around what Paul is talking about here in this verse, then we're going to really have a better handle on um, how to wield and understand the book of Galatians as a whole. So for that reason, I've pulled this verse out, selected it for my liturgy again for the Greek. Uh, the English from the ESV reads here, This I've highlighted just verse 16 um, on the page there. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And now let's jump over to the Greek. Um, there, are there are you know, different manuscripts of the Greek. For this version, I'm reading the um, the Textus Receptus, which is, I think, 1550 uh, was when it was put together. But I've highlighted verse 16, you can see here, so let's go ahead and read the Greek. It says, Edotis hati udikai utai anthropos ex ergo namu in me dia pistios Jesu Christu kai hemes ais Christon Jesum. Epistusamen, hina de gaiothomen, ek pistios Christu kai uk ex ergonamu, diati u de gaiothesatai ex ergonamu pasa sarx. Okay, that'll do it for our liturgy today. I hope you're enjoying the liturgy. I have been reading and teaching myself. Hebrew for about 20 years, so I'm more comfortable with the Hebrew than I am with Greek. I've just begun to teach myself Greek over the last about two years, three years or so, and um, I find it helpful to know what the original languages are saying, because it's not that I don't trust translations. Many students ask me, why do I focus on the original languages? Why do I read the Hebrew and the Greek? It's not that I don't trust the translations. Far from it. I actually, I think the translations, the translators do a wonderful job of taking the, the uh, original language and, and transmitting it into a receptor language. But I find that for study, for Bible study, I, I've found it helpful to have the one of the original languages opened up, if at all possible. Because when I'm going through a study, it's I like to be able to find out which 
words a translator used when they chose their receptor language. You all know that one Hebrew or Greek word can be translated into multiple different receptor English words. And sometimes the translator has to choose from what we call a pool of words. So he has maybe a handful of words that are all kind of synonyms. And um, he has to choose which word fits the best nuance according to the context. But what happens, and this is not a bad thing, by the way, what I'm describing is simply the art of translation. What happens is the translator ends up inserting his own bias into his translation. And so what you're going to find is that the varying translations will all read slightly differently because of the translator's bias of what's going on in the text. And sometimes that bias, in my opinion, is closer to the context, and sometimes the bias is farther away from the context. And um, depending on the bias of the translator, we can either have the verse saying something completely different than what the original language may have intended, or we simply have it saying something that's close but with a different spin, a different nuance, a different color or shade of the text is what I mean by nuance. In the end, there no translator does any serious damage to the text, in my opinion. Uh, all the translations are, are well-meaning and are, are adequate for our general understanding of the text. But if you're going to be doing critical studying and you want to kind of get down to the nitty-gritty, get down uh, to the, to, you know, down to what we say the brass tacks, then then a translation is not going to always give you what you need. You're going to have to go back to the original language and look up original words and find out what words are underneath the translation so that you can kind of get an idea of maybe what um, options there are open to you. In a sense, you become your own translator. And of course, your own bias gets inserted, but it becomes a bias that you can own which is kind of a neat thing. And that's what we should do, is we should own the scriptures. So find a, uh, find a um, translation that you're comfortable with. Uh, I prefer the ESV, the CJB, uh, and the NASB. And I'm becoming fond of the, um, the Living Bible, the TLB. Uh, the, the CJB and the TLB, the, the, the uh, Complete Jewish Bible and the Living Bible, if, in case you don't know, know what my acronyms mean, those two versions happen to be messianic versions, meaning they are put together by a committee and or persons who have a Hebraic viewpoint, uh, meaning they think that or feel or believe like I do that uh, the Bible is best read with a Hebraic mindset in view. To include the New Testament, even though it's written in Greek, it was still penned by Hebraic authors, right? You know, uh, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, well, Luke may have been a proselyte, but uh, Matthew, Mark, John, and of course Paul, they're Jewish writers. So even though they wrote in Greek, or at least we, even though we've got the text in Greek, their thoughts are still going to convey Hebrew thoughts, meaning the culture is Hebraic. And it's helpful for us to get into their mind as we're reading through the text so that we can try and um, anticipate the culture behind the words, anticipate the social setting of the words, anticipate, of course, any Hebraisms or um, colloquialisms that kind of hide behind translations, etc., etc. So with that being said, let's jump over into the study. If you're looking at the screen, you'll see that I am on page 9 of the written notes, and we're starting with the introduction, finally, or as we say in Korean, didia. We're starting with the uh, uh, introduction. This first and, and we're on, what, week seven? <laughs> so um, 
essentially what has been happening is we've been working our way through the preface. If I were to scroll back into the screen for a moment so that you can see, those of you who are in the live class with me, you'll see as you look at the table of contents here that uh, the study has all of these multiple parts. Preface, which was the 10 common questions regarding Torah observance for Gentile Christians, which went from, from page 1 through page 9, I'm sorry, 1 through 8. And then the introduction is page 9, and then we start going through what I call the topical section of my study, sections 1 through 12, which cover topics that are important as we're studying the book of Galatians. Um, and then when we get past topic 12, which is the excursus, the beginning of the excursus, we start going through what I've labeled the tough phrasing. And the tough phrasing starts on page uh, 51 of the commentary, if you've printed out the written version. The tough phrasing starts in chapter 1 and works its way systematically uh, through all six chapters of the book. And that's kind of what I might call the commentary proper, if you will. So um, you don't have to really read the topical section first. If you're someone who feels that they have a rough idea of what the book of Galatians is about, and you just want to jump straight into the somewhat verse-by-verse -verse version of the commentary, you're welcome to just jump straight down to page 51 and start reading Galatians chapter 1, the commentary part there. Um, otherwise, I felt that it's important to sort of prepare the reader or the student of this particular commentary, since I wrote it. I felt it was uh, uh, pertinent to prepare the reader for the topics that are going to be introduced so that you can kind of get your mind in the uh, uh, get your mind in the um, social setting, in the historical setting, in the contextual setting of the book, and that's why I went through these twelve topical sections first: the the, the um, topics, the circumcision, the um, proselyte conversion, the works of the law, the the Acts chapter 10, the under the law, the things like that. That's why I went through those sections, and they're not very long. Most of them are about a page and a half, maybe two to three pages, etc. So we won't need to spend um, copious amounts of time going through the topical section per se. Besides, what I'm going to do for this commentary for the audio version that I'm recording for each class I will read the written notes, and then I'll stop and just go back and explain or expound upon what I already wrote. And that way, every student is sure to be able to follow along. Plus, as a live treat for those of you who are in the um, exclusive treat, I should say, for those of you who are attending the live classes each week, I uh, engage in a 15-minute question-and-answer session by way of chat for those of you who are listening along. Um, you can engage in the chat room uh, with me live, meaning you can dialogue with me. We can ask questions and answers. You can actually post questions throughout the study. While I'm teaching, you're welcome to post a question, but I, won't, I may not be able to stop and address it during the study. Rather, it may defer it all to all the way until we get to the very end of the, of the study and, and we go into the, the Q&A session, the chat session. But I encourage those of you who are listening to this study after the fact, and you're listening to this uh, whether on your MP3 player or you, you're, you've downloaded it on iPod, uh, iTunes, you've subscribed to the, the podcast, etc., or you're listening to it on one of my websites, um, graftedin.com or tatesetor.com. Um, you're encouraged to come out and join us every Tuesday evening. 
from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time and engage the live study so that you can participate in the chat um, because I don't record the chat session. I stop the audio recording at the end with the general dismissal and the prayer. So come on out and join us live. It's always nice to have students join me live so that we can just engage and, and further uh, study the text. Let's get going into the study. Let me scroll back down into the commentary. And we'll park ourselves on the introduction. The introduction, as you can see from the screen, is only one page long. So uh, this will give me ample time to read the introduction and then I'll just stop and I'm going to hit what I feel are the highlights of the book, the highlights of the, um, of the study. And this will be a really uh, beneficial uh, recording tonight because it's going to be a comprehensive summary, as it were, of the book. And uh, it'll help get us poised and oriented towards where I think we should go in the study. Exegene Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary, Introduction. I'm on page 9. In my, in my opinion, as one who embraces both Yeshua as Messiah, as well as the Torah of Moshe as a practical guidebook for everyday living, I believe, historically, the book of Galatians has misled Christian commentators due largely to the technical discussions of biblical topics ranging from circumcision to the Torah to freedom in Christ. Shaul, a.k.a. Paul or Saul, uses quite a number of technical phrases and words in this letter, and these terms, when removed from their original first-century Judaic context, will have the tendency to form the impetus for many and varied Christian interpretations that end up teaching concepts nearly quite the opposite of their original purpose. I'm not so bold as to imagine, as one author, that I've uncovered total truth on the matter. Rather, what I'm attempting to do this challenge us as students of God's Word to take a very scientific approach, if you will, to understanding how Paul's original readers would have interacted with this letter and exactly what course of action the author Paul was expecting them to take as a result of reading and implementing his letter. This means putting aside our preconceived Jewish and Christian biases and letting Galatians, indeed the entire Word of God, speak for itself. We all see through glasses tainted by bias, and I am no different. But how different would the text become if we could borrow the glasses of the Apostle Paul for a few weeks while we poured through his letter concept by concept? By God's grace, this study is going to attempt to do just that. This study is going to be a bit different in its approach to the letter of Galatians. I'm not going to simply conduct a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of every pasuk, that is, every verse, that Paul wrote. Instead, the first 12 lessons will treat the context of the letter of Galatians as a whole topical study, examining concepts found in the letter of Galatians, I'm sorry, examining concepts found in the letter one by one first, viz. circumcision, works of the law, under the law, etc., once we've laid the contextual foundation for the social setting of this letter, I believe we will be in a better position to exegete individual passages, that is, tough phrases, and we're going to exegete them one by one, which, we'll, which we will actually do in the second, more lengthy, excursus portion of this commentary. Reference the table of contents for more details. 
It is my hope that this contextual study, along with its limited excursus of selected tough phrasing from the book of Galatians, will help to unravel the letter for both Christians and Jews. To be sure, without a proper background to the book, we will forever misread Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. For this particular portion of the contextual study, allow me to start in Breshit, Genesis, with Avraham and circumcision. We'll put bookends on the study by concluding with Avraham and circumcision as well in section 11, The Promise. If we begin to peel back the the mysteries surrounding this simple biblical command and the way the first century Judaisms interacted with it, we will stand a better chance at understanding Shaul and his enigmatic instructions. Okay? All right, so I've just read the introduction for those of you who are studying along with me. Let me go back and just kind of um, tell you where I'm going with the study and why I feel uh, this particular study um, bears relevance for us. Again, every commentary that you read on the book of Galatians, in my opinion, is a helpful commentary. However, you're going to always encounter the bias of the translator or the commentator, and I'm no different. So I'm going to share with you my particular bias. What I have found when I read through the book of Galatians is I've discovered in my dialogue with well-meaning Christian friends and family members, uh, pastor friends, theologians, fellow seminarians, things like that. What I found if we interact with the book of Galatians is I found that many people approach the book of Galatians with a preconceived idea of what Paul was writing about, what occasioned him to write what he wrote, um, a preconceived idea of what the background to the text is, And in that preconceived approach to the book, we sometimes end up missing the details of the book. And I'm not going to try and make this into a study where I pick on all the Christian pastors and commentators, where I pit myself against their comments in an effort to prove that my uh, commentary is superior to theirs. That's not what I'm going to do. What I have found is that their commentaries are very helpful particularly when it comes to the central tenets of the Christian faith. But what I found is that we need to take what standard Christianity has handed down to us for the last 2,000 years, but we need to build on it. As Messianics, as Torah communities, we need to take what has already been laid down as a central foundation, and we need to ingest that, we need to implement that into our communities, but we also need to continue to rely on the presence and the power of the Ruach HaKodesh in our communities, the Holy Spirit. And in this reliance upon the Spirit, we learn new ways to interact with the text. And here's what I mean. Traditional Christianity for about the last 2,000 years or so has understood Paul to be essentially discouraging his readers, um, the readers of his uh, letter, discourages and readers from uh, falling back under Judaism, for falling back under the law, for going back into Torah obedience, for falling back into... Um, implementing the Sabbaths, the dietary laws, the the um, circumcision, the holiness uh, laws, from Paul is basically discouraging them from trying to implement Torah in their communities, and we know that this is the standard Christian view because of the commentaries that we can pick up on the Book of Galatians, and basically everything hinges on the verse that I singled out in my. Um, liturgy. So if you're looking at the screen, you'll see I've got Galatians 2, 16 pulled up again. 
standard standard Christianity and Christian theology basically takes this verse and elevates it to the position of the central theme of the book of Galatians. And I agree with that assessment. I think that uh, Galatians 2.16 is essentially the heart of the book of Galatians, and he who unlocks the meaning of Galatians 2.16 essentially has a lot unlocked the book of Galatians, for the most part. So here's what I mean. Let me describe traditional Christian views of this verse. And most of you who have listening, who've followed me for any length of time, know where I'm going to go with my description here in a moment. I'm going to set up a caricatured view of the book of Galatians as seen through the lens of standard Christianity or the prevailing Christian view. And then I'm going to contrast that caricature with what I have learned is a more accurate sociological and historical and theological view of the book of Galatians as we have. Um, availed ourselves of the extra resources that are being um, found out today. And I'll get to that, all those details in a moment. But let me um, start by talking about the prevailing Christian view. So what we have in Galatians 2.16 is Paul saying that we know that a person is not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Pause. We have Paul setting up a dichotomy between two ways of justification. We have, on one hand, justification by works of the law. And if I jump over to the Greek again, um, you'll see that, uh, let me highlight the part that a justification by the works of the law, uh, that would be right here. Dikaiutai anthropos ex ergonamu. Justified or made righteous every man by the works of the law. Dikaiutai is a word that is borrowed from the law courts. Um, made righteous, uh, the the word dikaiutai, the original Greek word, um, root word, the um, dikaio word, is a word that was uh, handed down to us. If you're looking at the screen, you'll see it's this word right there and highlighted in blue. Um, it's a word that's been borrowed by Paul from the law courts of his day. We had the, the judge who would pronounce the sentence or declare a, a person, whether guilty or righteous, or guilty or not guilty, acquitted, etc. And dikaiutai, the phrase there, which is its root word in uh, dikaio, that's the word that Paul's using in his letter when he says that justified by works of law, dikaiutai anthropos, this next word, anthropos is, is man. You can um, Anthropology, the word that we have in English, is borrowed from this Greek phrase, uh, anthropos. Ex ergon namu, this next phrase, uh, ex ergon namu, is, ex is from, but literally out of, having its origin in, ergon works, namu, law. So, um, the entire phrase there, dikaiutai uh, anthropos ex ergon namu, is justified by works of the law. Um, and Paul is juxtaposing this justification with faith in Jesus Christ. And um, here he has dia... Let's see if I can catch all of it there. There we go. Dia pistios Jesu Christu. But through faith in Jesus Christ. Then dia is through pistios, faith or faithfulness. Um, Its root word is pistis, pistios. And then Jesu is where we get um, Jesus, 
and Christu is where we get Christ or Messiah. So we have these two ways of justification that Paul is juxtaposing or he is contrasting. In a word, he's letting his readers know that it's only one way or the other, folks. You can't have both ways. They are diametrically opposed to one another. It's either works of the law or it's faith in Christ. Now, the church has taught for 2,000 years correctly that faith in Christ is the correct choice. It's the right way to choose. It's the one that Paul wants his readers to choose, and it is the one that we should choose because it is the right choice. We know this to be true. However, where Christian theology has gone slightly off to the left, or slightly off-center, is in their translation or interpretation of the phrase works of the law, the ergonamu part. That's the part where I'm going to take difference. Traditional Christianity feels that works of the law is a, Paul's description of merit theology, Paul's description of good works versus bad works that are rooted in obedience to Torah. So Christianity essentially takes works of the law as shorthand for works done in obedience to the law, something to that effect. In a word, works of the law would be described by Paul. This is, again, using traditional Christian viewpoints on this passage. Works of the law is Paul's description of Torah obedience or keeping the law or um, walking in obedience to Torah. So for Paul, this would be um, things that we today would recognize as keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher, having your uh, baby boy circumcised on the eighth day, uh, keeping the festivals, keeping the um, holiness issues that were related to the temple of of Paul's day, uh, the sacrificial system. So um, according to Christian theology, Paul is basically saying that you can't be justified by keeping the law. You have to be justified by faith in Christ. Now, from a theological perspective, I wholeheartedly agree with the Christian assessment if that is what they're trying to say. If Christianity is trying to tell me, a 21st century Jew, that no one is justified by keeping the law but only by faith in Christ, then I have to say, amen, amen, a thousand times, amen. We're not justified by walking in Torah obedience. We're not justified by our keeping of the law. We're not justified by our good works. We're not justified by merit theology. We're justified by faith in Christ. Pistios, um, pistios uh, uh, Jesus Christus. We're not justified by uh, ergonamu. So I agree with Christian theology in that regard, that we're not justified by keeping Torah. We're justified by faith in Christ. And of course, justified is a fancy theological term that simply means saved, right? We're saved by faith in Christ. We're not saved by our merits. We're not saved by our good works. So again, amen, amen, a thousand times amen. However, historically, historically and sociologically, is that really what Paul was trying to tell his listeners, his readers? Was he really combating or um, disagreeing with a misuse of Torah obedience? Or was it something else that they were misusing? In other words, what is the specific error of the first century Jews? What is the specific, um, what do we say, the specific legalism? Or what exactly is the pattern of religion that Paul was um, describing in his letters? So, let me now set aside the first century worldview as seen through the lens of Christianity. 
And let me turn now to a view of Paul that I feel is a little bit more accurate. And the reason I believe it's a little bit more accurate is because of the difficulties that it overcomes with the text. Um, let me stop for a moment before I jump into the uh, the new perspective on Paul, that's what I'm basically describing. Before I jump into that, let me say a word about the traditional Lutheran view of Paul, the traditional Christian view of Paul one more time. Let me uh, stay on that camp for a second. This traditional view of Christianity, which, again, I agree with the theology that we're not saved by keeping Torah, we're saved by faith in Christ, we're saved by faith in Jesus. I agree with that theology. However, what Christianity does is they take the theology of their understanding of works of law, which means Torah obedience, and they take it one step further. Quite often, as you know, Paul uses another sister phrase to works of the law, Ergon Amu. He uses a sister phrase called under the law, which is uh, uponamon. And under the law in Christianity also, oddly enough, is identical in meaning to works of the law. So Christianity basically says it this way. Because we're not saved by the works of the law, therefore we are no longer under the law. And if I were to um, interpret their statement, I, it would come out like this. Uh, believers are not under Torah obedience. I'm sorry. Believers are not saved by obedience to Torah. Therefore, they are no longer obligated to keep Torah. Okay? That's essentially how Christianity has interpreted Paul's two phrases, works of the law and under the law, respectively. Works of the law is, is Paul, and again, this is standard Christian theology. According to the prevailing Christian view, works of law is the system of keeping the law for the purpose of earning salvation. And therefore, because it is opposed to faith in Christ, it is a false system of justification. It is a legalistic view of salvation. And because we are not saved by works of law, therefore, the, 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 stand, the standard Christian view is going to say, therefore, the natural result is that we're no longer under the law. So, so again, Christianity takes works of law and under the law and essentially describes them as two, th two phrases that mean the same thing. They both essentially mean keeping the law. However, my difference with Christianity is starts with their understanding of works of law. If we start with a different understanding or different perspective of works of law, then we're not going to end up with our with the view that we have of of under the law as being bad. Again, if I were to um, pull up Romans, oh, probably six fifteen. Let me just. Um, let me jump to it here in my, uh, if you're looking at the screen, let me just jump to Romans 6 and scroll down to about 15. We see here, uh, oops, didn't mean to do that. We see here in Romans, um, I could start in verse 14. 14 and 15 basically covers what I'm trying to uh, get at. Romans 6, 14 and 15 reads out of the ESV, quote, For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Verse 15, What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. All right. Now, if we take this verse and we 
compare it, the phrase under the law, with what we just learned about in Galatians 2.16, uh, which was uh, a works of the law, what we're seeing here is that Christianity takes works of the law and under the law and kind of combines them in an effort to see that Paul's, or say that Paul's describing Torah obedience. And I, I can't find that to be a workable view because if works of the law means um, merit theology or works of law is a false system of justification, uh, meaning works of law is uh, works done in obedience to the law, and that the natural next step or jump in our logic, according to Christian theology, is that because we're not uh, because we're not saved by works of the law, we're under the law. Well, then we're not under the law. If Paul's saying we're not under the law, then essentially Paul's saying that we're not uh, under obedience to the law. We are no longer um, we are no longer expected to keep Torah. And that's where I have to disagree with Christian theology because that disagrees with what Paul has taught in other parts of his books and other parts of the New Testament. It also disagrees with the entire Old Testament corpus as a whole. The theology of saying that we're no longer under obedience to the Torah, the theology that says we're no longer under obligation to Torah commands, does not agree with Paul's words and it doesn't agree with the Old Testament as a whole. And so for that reason, we cannot really have Paul saying we're no longer under the law if we understand that works of the law is a meritorious system of trying to keep the law for the person of salvation. Are you following my logic, or am I losing anyone? I hope that my logic makes sense. Again, this is the traditional Christian view, launching from works of the law and moving into under the law. Now, in order to agree with Christian theology, we have to understand that works of law is a bad thing, it's a bad position, and that also under the law is a pejorative position. It's something that we don't want to be. We don't want either one of those in our lives if we understand the, the import of what Paul is trying to say. Works of the law is opposed to faith in Christ. Therefore, because works of the law is in opposition to faith in Christ, then we as genuine believers want to stay away from works of law, whatever it is. Despite how we translate Paul's phrase, ergonamu, works of law, whatever it is, it's something we want to stay away from. Whatever it is, it's something that's not advantageous to the life of a believer. So that much we know without even knowing what works of law means. We know we can tell from the context that it's it's a bad thing because it it, it it is a false theology. It is a it's an untruth. It is um, something that's opposing faith in Christ. So works of the law is bad. But what we also find is that when we read through the Romans six fourteen and fifteen verses here that I just showed you, we find that whatever under the law is, it's also bad. Did you catch that from the from reading the verse there? For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law but under grace. What are we to say? Uh, that are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. So notice Paul is, again, pitting two different positions. Whatever under the law is, it's something that we are not. Because he tells us explicitly, you are not under law but under grace. So we can't have it both ways. Whatever under law is in this verses, it's something that we're not. Paul says we are under grace. We're not under law. So, the key to unlocking the book of Galatians, and indeed unlocking Paul's letters, is in how do we understand these two phrases, works of law and under the law. Whatever those two phrases mean, and whatever they are, and we know they're bad, whatever they are, whatever they mean, they are something that 
either is going to steer us away from keeping Torah or it's going to steer us away from something else. And that is my point in my study. That's why I'm having the study that I'm doing. That's why I wrote the commentary that I wrote. So let me just tell you in these last 15 minutes in the live class here where I believe Paul is going in his, um, in his statements here. Let me just keep both verses open for a second. I want to get them both side by side. Bear with me here. Uh, let's put Romans 6 here, and let's put Galatians 2 here. All right, so I've got, if you're looking at your screen, you see I've got both uh, verses um, pulled up. I've got Romans 6 here, and what do we say, are we saying, let's say, let's, let's stop at Romans 6.14 right there. And for Galatians 2, let's bump the text up just, uh, I guess we're fine there. All right, um, so in Galatians, let me start here. In Galatians, we have Paul saying, a person's not justified by works of law. Traditional Christianity thinks that works of law means uh, obedience to law. And again, theologically, it would be true if Paul were teaching that we're not saved by keeping the Torah, but we're saved by faith in, in Jesus. That's a theologically true statement. If Paul were teaching it, if that's what Paul meant by um, uh, works of the law, then uh, I would have to completely agree with Paul. Give me a moment here. Let me just check the levels on the recording. Okay, everything looks good. All right. If that's what Paul were teaching, then that's exactly where I would stay and I wouldn't have to move my commentary one iota. However, what we have found as we work through the language that Paul uses in his letters and what we are finding as um, students of God's Word, what we're finding as uh, we uncover more and more um, documents from the first century as we corroborate the writings of Paul with extra-biblical writings as we... Um, compare the theology of Paul with the theology of Judaism and with the theology of, of um, the first century, I'm sorry, with the theology of the Torah itself. What we find is that if Paul is saying that we're not saved by keeping the Torah, it, it, it strains at the credibility of the um, social interaction with the Torah. What I mean is, if you actually sit down and read through the Torah, and what I mean by the Torah is, say, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of Moses, if you read through them with the idea that you're going to um, follow every commandment for the purpose of being saved, you're going to find that it's an impossible way of reading through the Torah. And the reason it's impossible is because the Torah doesn't read like a simplistic grocery list. In other words, there are many, many commandments that are... Um, uh, aimed at priests. There are many commandments that are aimed at men. Some are aimed at women. Some are aimed at children, etc., etc. And no one person, no single Israelite could possibly read through the Torah with the understanding of thinking that they could follow it from A to Z or follow it from step 1 to step 10 and come out the other end being saved because you can't keep every single commandment as an individual person. Make sense so far? So because of that, there's no practical way 
that the Jewish person living in the first century would have interacted with his scriptures that way. He wouldn't have looked at it as saying, hmm, God's telling me that if I follow all of the Torah perfectly, that I'll be saved. That's, that strains credibility from a Jewish perspective. And that's one of the reasons why I can't read works of the law as simplistic Torah obedience. Another reason why I can't see it that way is because um, extra-biblical writings that have survived the destruction of the first century, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, use this phrase, works of the law, in their documentation. 4QMMT is a Qumran scroll that was unearthed, I think, in the 50s, but it was translated in the, um, I think it was translated in the 90s. Or may get that I may, I may get that wrong. It may have been unearthed like a long, long time ago and finally translated in the 50s, if I'm correct. Nevertheless, works of law shows up in that document as well. And for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, translators had a phrase that for, for the longest time simply seemed like Paul created it, plucked it out of thin air. This phrase, ergon namu, works of law, um, that I have highlighted uh, this phrase right here in the Greek. If you're looking at the screen, ergon amu. For the longest time, we had no clue what Paul meant by this phrase, works of law. Did he make it up? Because it didn't have any uh, contemporaries in modern Greek, in biblical Greek, in rabbinic literature. There was no counterpart. We didn't have any phrase that showed up elsewhere. It only showed up exclusively in Paul's writings, is my point. But when 4QMMT showed up, the Qumran document, suddenly that phrase, uh, Ergon Amu, showed up in the Hebrew. Ma'asehator is what it is in Hebrew. And if we take the Greek phrase and translate it into Hebrew, it's essentially that's what it is. Ma'asehatorah. Or we reverse translate uh, the Hebrew back over into Greek, then we end up with Ergon Amu. And essentially what we had is in this document a description of a boundary marker, a boundary-defining um, group policy that was being imposed on group members. I keep calling it a short list in my commentaries. Basically, we had in this 4QMMT document about 20 different commandments or precepts or statutes or rules, as you were, group rules. And these group rules were imposed on the group members. And the group rules helped to differentiate this group from other groups. We already know that the Qumran um, community uh, were, were kind of the asceticists of Paul's day. They um, Bylaws, yes, Amy says bylaws, absolutely. Uh, the, um, the Qumrans had separated themselves from the larger Jewish community and had gone off and formed essentially their own locally autonomous groups, and they felt that the larger Jewish communities were essentially corrupted. They felt that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were essentially corrupt, and so they basically went off to start their own brand of Judaism, uh, complete with its own interpretation of each individual commandment. And that's not unlike denominations do today. You know, you have a group a larger group that splinters into several different groups that each go off in their own different direction and create their own bylaws and their own interpretations, and they come up with their own translations, and essentially they give themselves their own denominational name. And on the surface, that's harmless, but on the whole, it can break the cohesion of the group and cause further splintering and fracturing. But the Kuman group is no different. So from their perspective, they 
had the truth, and they had the exclusive window on the truth. And so, in order for their members to be recognized by them, uh, by their group, they had to make a way to mark out and differentiate their group members from other Jewish people in general. And so, their small list of commandments, their 20 or so rules, their bylaws, was termed works of the law. And so, these works of the law became, in essence, the requirement needed or imposed upon group members in order to both get into the group and to stay in the group as good standing covenant members of the group. So essentially, the works of the law in the view of 4QMMT became a not only a, a membership package to get into the group, but a membership package to stay in the group. So there were two questions that essentially... Um, were being circulated in the Judaisms of Paul's day. And the two questions that were being asked among the Jewish groups of Paul's day were, A, how does one get into the covenant people known as Israel? How does one get into the group? And the second question, B, was how does one stay in the group of Israel? How does one stay in the people group known as Israel? And the reason these two questions were important from a Jewish perspective was because from the Jewish perspective, all Israel and only Israel shared a place in the world to come. All Israel and only Israel. That's actually a quote from the Mishnah, from um, Sanhedrin 10.1, if, I, if I'm getting my address correctly. All Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come. And because Israel believed that she alone inherited corporate salvation, in other words, she alone was elected by God from all the people groups of the earth. She alone was the repository of the wisdom and the words of Hashem. She alone had the ways of salvation. Then she alone was the only one that was really going to go from this life into the next life. In other words, she alone was the group member. She alone was a covenant member. Now, from a natural perspective, that's somewhat true. God cut a covenant with only Israel, only with Israel, exclusively with Israel, with no other people group. And in this exclusive deal with Israel, God gave this group the Torah. We know this is true from Exodus 20 and the giving of the ten words at Mount Sinai. God cut a covenant with Israel. He rescued them from Egypt, brought them to the foot of Sinai, and then gave them his laws. And so in Israel's view of things, they were confusing their natural covenant membership position with spiritual covenant membership. Understand? That's the better way to understand Paul. And so the Jewish people of Paul's day didn't think that keeping the Torah saved them. They felt that their membership in Israel as an ethnicity, in other words, they felt their Jewish identity saved them. It saved them, meaning, if I use the word save there in the first century context, meaning they felt that Jewish ethnicity or group membership gained them covenant membership or afforded them covenant membership. Um, one reader put it this way, uh, uh, one of my uh, students here uh, to the commentary, to my Galatians class, she calls it um, uh, ethnic privilege or something that effect, to that effect, ethnic privilege. So in a word, the works of the law in Paul's day more accurately describes the the um, the membership package that is imposed upon anyone who wishes to be in the group and stay in the group. So if you're in the group, if you're born a Jew, 
then you're already in the group. You just need to keep the works of the law in order to be a good standing member of the group. So remember, each group had its own bylaws. The Kumon group, theirs was about 20 commandments long. The, the Galatians group likely didn't have a longer list. Theirs was probably a real short list. Theirs was probably at least these three. Theirs was probably Sabbath, dietary issues, and circumcision. At the very least, circumcision. If we were to distill it down to one, it would be circumcision. But it was more likely that it was those three. It was Sabbath, dietary laws, and the um, circumcision for men. And for women, you didn't have to go through circumcision, but you still brought the um, uh, required sacrifice and and um, went through the mikvah waters so that you could convert. So essentially what we had is Jewish leaders of Paul's day had um, um, crafted a short list where they, where they looked into the 613 laws of the Torah and they lifted a few of what we call the visible boundary-defining badges out of the Torah. What I mean by visible boundary-defining is those commandments, when viewed from the outside, can mark the people out very easily. And what do I mean? The Sabbath is an easily identifiable boundary marker that separates the Jewish people from the rest of humanity. Am I, am I right? Am I true there? If you look at a people group who are keeping the Sabbath, you can instantly identify those people group as Jews. You could do so in the first century, and essentially you can do so today. So, the Sabbath became one of the badges of identification as a Jew. Along with that, we had the dietary laws. Those became what we call, identify as basically a badge of demarcation between the Jewish people and non-Jews, so that you could tell a non-Jew by what he ate. And then the third thing that essentially marked the Jewish people out by way of identification and differentiation from the rest of the humanity was circumcision for males. In fact, we know so much that circumcision became the identifier that when we read through the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament today, we find that the word circumcision is essentially a, a metonym for Jewish identity. It's a synonym for, for Jewish uh, so that Paul can say, we of the circumcised and they of the uncircumcised. And when he's what he's describing is Jewish and Gentile identity. And he doesn't have to say Jewish and Gentile. He can simply say circumcised and uncircumcised because they function as synonymous term. Or, uh, uncircumcised refers to Gentiles and circumcised refers to Jews. But you guys already knew that. So so keep, as, as I continue to work from this um, better perspective on Paul, uh, what some people call the new perspective, but I'll just call it the better perspective. Other times I'll call it the new perspective. This view of works of law has Paul saying that the works of law is essentially the bylaws that separate Jews from Gentiles. So for Jews, it would be those three boundary defining um, or those that handful of boundary uh, badge uh, social boundary-defining commandments that cause us to be different from Gentiles and cause us to maintain our position as covenant members that were uh, corporately elected by God, which is, a, which is called grace. So for the Jews, um, works of the law is essentially that which keeps us, gets us in the group and keeps us in the group as good-standing Jews. In other words, we get in the group because we're Jewish, and we stay in the group because we keep the Torah. In other words, we stay away from idolatry. 
So from the Jewish perspective in Paul's day, this would be the errant theology that Paul would have to contrast. This would be the legalism that Paul was um, trying to uh, destroy. This is my particular understanding of the Jewish legalism of Paul's day. This is not the church's view, by the way. Let me describe my view, not the church's view. My view of the legalism of Paul's day was that Jewish identity gets me in the group. In other words, Jewish identity is what makes me a covenant member. And um, keeping the Torah or steering clear of idolatry is what keeps me in the group as a covenant member, as a Jewish covenant member. In other words, in this view, in this errant theological view, and it is errant to be sure, it's not true, but I have to describe it from a historical point of view anyway. In this view, the Torah is a Jewish-only document. Are you beginning to see it there? The Torah is not for Gentiles. It's not for pagans. It's not for idolaters. It's not for non-covenant members. The Torah is a member-only document. Just like those of you who are members at your church, the membership package that you receive signifies membership to the, to the church that you belong. The membership bylaws are not intended for non-members. You do not receive the membership package as a non-member. The membership package is only intended to be carried out by upstanding members. True? Okay, so consider that works of the law is essentially the membership package. It is the set of bylaws that, as an existing member, you keep or uphold or honor in order to keep your place in the membership or keep your membership in the group. We all know that if you thumb your nose at the membership package, then essentially you get um, kicked out of the group, right? You get excommunicated. And that's that's normal. So in essence, that's what was going on in Paul's Judaisms, in the Jewish uh, social groups of Paul's day. They had these, each group, you know, the Pharisees had their works of the law, the Sadducees had their works of law, the Essenes had their works of law, the Bethusians had their works of law, the Nazarenes had their works of the law, and then suddenly this new group called the, called the Way, the, uh, the, the Christians essentially, they had their works of the law. So each group had their works of the law, this membership packet, and their works of the law described the lifestyle of an existing member, and um, it also helped to keep that existing member as a good, upstanding member of the group that he belonged to. So, instead of saying that works of law is generically keeping the Torah, we have Paul describing a specific group of small laws of, of boundary-defining laws that, for Jews, didn't really get them in the group. It helped them to stay in the group. But for Gentiles, it actually got them in the group and then helped them stay in the group. <coughs> Understand? So, when Paul says we're not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, he's not saying we're not justified by keeping the law. Theologically, that would be true, but historically, that would be inaccurate. Instead, historically, it's more accurate for Paul to be saying, we're not justified, we Jews are not justified by our ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And for Gentiles, he would say, we Gentiles are not justified by Jewish identity, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason I keep picking on or singling out or highlighting the Jewish identity part is because to get into the group, that was the primary method of getting into the group known as Israel. 
ethnic identity as a Jew was essentially what brought you into the group of Jewish-only Israel. And keeping the Torah or keeping clear or staying clear of idolatry was what kept you in the group. So it's one coin with two sides. The ethnic identity would be the head side and the uh, keeping Torah would be the tail side of the one coin. Works of the law is this one coin with two sides. So standard Christianity doesn't see that. They don't see that. And because they don't see that, they launch from works of the law as supposedly meaning Torah obedience, and they move into under the law as meaning obligation to Torah, meaning Torah obedience all over again. And that's why I said that works of the law and under the law in standard Christian theology essentially describe the same thing, which is Torah obedience. And because Christian theology teaches that works of law is opposed to faith in Christ, and that we're not under law but under 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 grace, then it's standard Christian theology has no choice but to view Torah observance as something that is bad and something that is opposed to grace. See my point? And so for those reasons, the the traditional Lutheran view of Paul, the, the prevailing Christian view of Paul, is unworkable. It's because Paul would not see Torah obedience as something that was bad. Unless, of course, you were thinking that Torah obedience saved you. Then, of course, Paul would think that was bad. That's true. But, as I've already described, Paul would not have any need to uh, see Torah obedience as being misused by the Judaisms or the Jewish people of his day because it's not practical to think of the Torah in simplistic merit theology terms. So, I've used up all my time for the Torah study. I hope that I'm beginning to show you now that there's a better way to understand Paul. There's a better way to read Paul. We still know, we still affirm, we still agree that that works of the law and under the law are bad things. However, what we're learning as I conclude is that works of the law doesn't have to mean a system described by Paul as works of obedience to law. And under the law does not have to mean under obedience to the commandments. In fact, I didn't tell you what I think under the law means. I'll just tell you real quick, and then I'll close in prayer, and then I'll open up the room for the uh, live Q&A. Under the law doesn't mean under obedience to the law. Under the law quite often means under the penalties spelled out in the Torah reserved for unrepentant sinners. In other words, under the law is kind of shorthand for under condemnation of the law. In other words, that's why it's bad. That's why we're not under law, but under grace. If I jump over to the Romans passage here, <clears throat> you'll see here when he says, um, sin will have no dominion over you. I'm reading a Romans 6.14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. What Paul is saying is sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under condemnation. You're not under bondage to the law. You're not under bondage to sin, I'm sorry. You're not under bondage to sin. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under bondage. You're not under condemnation. You're not under the penalty, but under grace. Understand? That's the best, better way to understand Romans 6, 14, and 15. Under the law doesn't mean under obligation to the law. Why would Paul say you're not under obligation to the law? Especially when God explained to Israel... 1,500 years ago, that you are under obligation to obedience to the law. I just read it in, this, in the uh, Deuteronomy passage, right? Um, look at verse 6. 
And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon your heart. These words, Hadvarim. What words, what are the Devarim that, that, um, that Moses is describing in verse 6? Well, of course, the words of the Torah. So, um, I mean, that, if I scroll back up, if you're looking at the screen, you'll see Deuteronomy 6 1 starts out with, Now, this is the commandment, the statute, the statutes, and the ordinance which is Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither you go over to possess it. Zot ha mitzvah, ha chukim, ha mishpatim, asher tzivah Adonai lochechem, lelamed etchem laasot, ba eretz asher atem avirim shema larishta. These are the commandments, or actually it says Zot HaMitzvah, this is the commandment, in the singular. The statutes HaChukim, and the ordinances HaMishpatim, and God commands us to do them, right? So that's why we jump down to verse 6, and these words which I command thee today shall be upon thy heart. Um, the reason they're upon our heart is because we're commanded to do them, and the reason we do them is because they're upon our heart. So why would Paul have to warn us about doing them, when God commanded us to do them. God commanded us to put them on our heart, right? We'll flesh this out in later commentaries, but for now, or later teachings, but for now, suffice to say, under the law cannot possibly mean under obedience to Torah commands, where Paul is juxtaposing under the law with under grace. Paul can't be saying we're not under obedience to the Torah, when God clearly says we are under obedience to the Torah, we being Jews and Gentiles, wing at the very least being Israel. So we being believers. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, uh, let me close in prayer, and then I'll open the room up for, um, open the floor up for general Q&A that you might have. Um, next week, by the way, we'll start into the topical section with uh, page 10, number section number one, uh, Brit Milah, which is a Hebrew phrase that means uh, covenant of circumcision. And we're going to start talking about circumcision because, as I already mentioned or teased you with, the word circumcision in Paul's day didn't simply mean removal of the foreskin of the male sex organ. That's not what circumcision only hinted at. Circumcision meant a whole lot more, and we're going to talk about that next week. Um, but for now, let me close in prayer and give a general dismissal for those of you who are um, listening to this commentary by way of the, uh, audio, the audio recording after the fact. Let's pray. Avinu Ma'akainu, our Father, our King, Lord, I bless you tonight, and I thank you for the opportunity to sit before the students once again and to share my heart, to pour out uh, my thoughts, and to be passionate about what I believe is a more accurate way to understand the book of Galatians. Lord, I believe that the words of Paul are relevant for us today. And I believe that if we as believers, if, if we as messianic communities, we as tour communities are to come up higher and to walk uh, in a way worthy of our Messiah, the worthy of the way that the Master uh, commanded us to walk, Lord, we're going to have to be noble Bereans and press into the text and to seek to understand it more closely. And Lord, in order to do that, we're going to have to rely on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to unlock the text to our meaning. Because, Father, we quite often do not understand the words the way you want us to understand them. So, Father, forgive us where we fall short. 
Help us to press in. Help us to confess sin. Help us to turn away from sin. Help us to resist the devil. Help us to not be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit, because we know that is the way that we will be pleasing to you. Help us, Father, to stay knitted to the vine, because in continuing to fall uh, in love with Yeshua over and over again every day, we will stay close to the truth. We will be filled with your words, and we will be a witness to those around us. Amen. Father, bless you for bringing us together. Help us to have a good break. Thank you for the students who were with us tonight. Bless those who listened to the um, commentary after the fact. Um, Help us to have a good break during this Thanksgiving and bring us back together safely uh, once again next week. We'll be careful to give you the praise. B'Shem Yeshua, M'Shechenu, Be'emru, Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>